Well, thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be here. I uh, had a wonderful day yesterday uh, going down to Traverse City and seeing that beautiful downtown and nice weather here in Michigan. And, you know, as you could probably understand, I'm from Alabama and I'm southern Alabama and I'm 20 minutes from the ocean where I live. So it's quite a difference to come way up here. But difference is good. It's a beautiful area and I, I really enjoyed myself already. Now, uh, my wife, Tondi, could not be with us. We had a plane ticket purchased and everything. But on Monday, she had severe pain and found out that she, for the first time in her life, she was told that she has diverticulitis and she was um, having an infection and could be hospitalized if she didn't rest right away. So she's feeling better today. And I talked to her this morning, but she regrets that she couldn't come. She's disappointed. And actually, I was disappointed, too, because I really was looking forward to her walking around Traverse City with me yesterday, but um, maybe some other time. So uh, I want to say that I have gotten to know your pastoral team even more this uh, trip. I met Bree and I met Tabitha in the retreat that we had in South Carolina in February and was wonderful to connect with them. And um, I just want to tell you that that your team is really godly people. They're really serious about their love for the Lord and their love for you. And uh, I really want to just commend them for the work that they're doing. And um, I think they're doing a good job. So um, I was asked to share a little bit today, uh, today and tonight on our fire values. And uh, so if you have your bulletin, you know, it says our values and it's got the, um, the four values. And the first one this morning is going to be on the Father's love, the Father heart of God. And um, because there's only two services, I'll only be able to do two, but um, they're, they're very connected. And so I hope you come back tonight, and uh, I really want to share with you what God has done in my life, because it's not just theory, it's not just a Bible study or a message I really am the message because my life has been changed radically in a very good way by the fire values that I learned. And I want to just share with you just a tiny bit about the background of this. You know, the revival in Toronto was happening. It was happening a number of years. I was going back. I was very connected. Our church, which I pastored previously in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was the very first church that was in their network. And uh, so we were meeting and having pastors' meetings and revival services. And so one day, uh, we had a table-like discussion, roundtable discussion of all these pastors. And it was a number of years ago. And it was kind of like this. It was, it was like uh, the topic was, how would you suggest we plant churches? How do you do it? And there were people from England there and from Australia and Europe and the United States and Canada. And so everybody was sharing, you know, pastors love the mic. They love to talk, you know. And so the, the roundtable discussions were talking. But at my table was John Arnott, you know, the, the father figure of this whole revival, you know. And he didn't say a word. And everybody's talking in my group of ten. And there's other groups too, you know. And we're supposed to come up with, you know, direction and then share it at our table and have a public discussion about it. And it just dawned on me, John Arnett, our leader, hasn't said a word. How do you plant churches? What do you suggest? So I just said that. I said, John, you haven't said a word. I said, how would you plant a church? And he said four things. And I wrote it down. And the four things he said were not necessarily things you would recognize, because what he said was he he mentioned people's ministries. He said, well, if I would plant a church, I would have this person in because they have an emphasis on this. And I would have this guy in and do that. And, and for example, Mark Verkler, I would have in hearing God's voice, how to hear God's voice. And then he said the fourth thing, and he said, and of course, I'd always like to have a church that was very open to the Holy Spirit. So I wrote down his, his three names of different ministries and what their emphasis was. And I wrote it down, and I went back home and to my local church, and I thought, I'm going to write on a piece of paper 
to explain to my church, what are we all about? What is this revival all about? And because I'm very logical, I, I'm a Greek, by the way, um, very analytical, I thought, um, I want to put it into like an acrostic. And so the first one was easy. You know, he said this one minister was Jack Winter from Fargo, North Dakota, by the way. And he said, Jack Winter always had a message on the Father's love. So I thought, okay, I got something. You know, we Pentecostal spirit-filled people, you know, we believe in the fire, right? And the cloven tongues of fire, Acts chapter 2. So I wrote it down, you know, F for the Father's love. And I was reworking everything, you know, that John had said about these other people. And I started working it out. And it came up with F-I-R-E. And I wrote it down. I gave it out to my church on Sunday. And uh, I stuck it in my Bible after I was done speaking, you know. And about a year later, I was in Toronto again. And we had another discussion amongst pastors. And before the discussion happened, and by the way, it was going to be the same discussion. Like, how do we plant churches? Let's talk about that again. So um, I walked up to John and to Fred, who was our coordinator of our network, and I said, I got these two uh, sheets of paper. I, I just wanted to share with you that, uh, what I did in our church. And lo and behold, what I handed them was these fire values that I worked out for our local church. And John Arnott said, Jim, this is really good. Where did you get this? And I said, I got it from you <laughs> from last year. And he said, I said this? I said, well, no, not exactly. I just rearranged it in a way that I could really easily understand it. And that's what is so good about, you know, uh, an acrostic. In our memories, you know, F-I-R-E, we repeat it and we remember it more. And he said, this is so good. And, and they began to use it. And little did I know, my little exercise, you know, of, of trying to figure out what we're all about would be used. And now those fire values are taught all over the world to pastor seminars in India, Bangladesh, to Australia, all over the world. Pastors have been trained in these fire values. So all I'm just saying is uh, humbly, I was used to like work that out and, and to just hand it in. Little did I know it would go all over the world. So, so what I'm really saying is this is me. This is a message that's really me. And it's really changed my life. And even tonight, more deeply, I'll share with you how specifically it's changed my life. And I was a person, I'll just give you a brief intro to tonight even. I was a person who was saved. I was absolutely saved from drugs and alcohol and depression and even suicide. And yet, as a Christian and as a pastor, I struggled with why am I not receiving the abundant life that Jesus has promised us? Why do other people have these blessings and, and not me? And I struggled with it for years. And when these values came into my life approximately 28 years ago, it began to work in me a freedom and a, a real joy of life that has really been genuine for me. So I'd really like to share that with you even more deeply tonight. But we must start out with a foundation. Before we go into tonight, which is about the healing of the heart, and I think all of our hearts have some brokenness, or else we wouldn't have needed to be coming to a Savior. And we needed a Savior. We weren't perfect. We weren't whole. And now he's making us whole. And that's what he's really doing. But we can go deeper into that healing process. And I'll share that tonight. But the foundation has to be that the Father loves you. That, that, that he loves you unconditionally. And I'd like to share that with you. So, again, I'm very logical. I want to start off very logical. And um, I got my clicker here ready. And so the first slide really essentially is my title. The Father Heart of God. And I know you believe that God is your father, but let's just examine this from the scripture and go deeper in this. The Old Testament, God had many titles, many names. For example, Jehovah, and the title implies a covenant God. Then there's Yahweh, the eternal God, who always was, he is, and always was. Elohim, the creator God. El Shaddai, God Almighty. At least 16 names, God's 
word tells us who he is and what his titles mean. Now, Jesus presents something really more deeper to us. But the Jews at the time before Jesus saw God as a protector, as a shepherd. And there's very little understanding in the Old Testament of God being a father. As a matter of fact, it's kind of hidden. It's hinted at. There's only 12 times in the Old Testament where God hints at the fact that he's a father. For example, Psalm 68 The psalmist says about God, he's a father to the fatherless. He is the God that sets the lonely in families, it says. And that's like a hint that God is a father. But the Jews really did not have a title, have an understanding that God is a father. They thought of him as shepherd, provider, protector, covenant God. And then the revelation of the father heart of God is uncovered by none other than Jesus Christ. It's a definite change that happens. As a matter of fact, if you'll think about it, it is so radical that the religious leaders of the day desire to kill him because he keeps saying that God is his father, that God is a father. It's radical. And so Father God was the prominent message of Jesus Christ. The very first sermon that he ever gave. You know, I remember the first sermon I gave over 40 plus years ago. I remember it. I put my heart into it. I wanted to do my best in my first sermon in the first church I was a part of. Well, Jesus' first sermon is the best. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 starts off with the Beatitudes, right? But if you'll notice, if you'll circle the word Father, he mentions Father, God is your Father, your Heavenly Father. Words of Father are in his first sermon 17 times. Already he eclipses all of the 39 books of the Old Testament, which hinted that God was a Father 12 times maybe. He's now exceeding it 17 times. Now it goes even beyond. Beyond that, the New Testament writers, as well as Jesus, goes on to talk about the Father, that God is your Father, over 260 times. So it's the dominant theme of the New Testament, that God is your Father. When someone receives Christ and they're born again, it's an amazing thing to witness. When they pray, the first time they ever pray, no one has to tell them that God is their Father, but you hear them pray, Heavenly Father, thank you you for this day. Thank you for the the trees and the birds. I remember this man that I, uh, in university, I led to the Lord, and he was so uh, lost in his his, uh, sin and in his darkness. And when I led him to the Lord, we were sitting in the college grounds, you know, the gardens. And when he prayed his prayer of the sinner's prayer, he said, so thank you, Heavenly Father, for all these beautiful grounds, and you've made all these things, Heavenly Father. You don't have to teach a newborn Christian that God is your Father. It's inherent. It's in their hearts. It's in their spirit. And that's what Jesus is bringing. Do you know that in the final two hours of Jesus' time with his disciples, he mentioned Father. You could circle it in the in the final couple of chapters of John in the Last Supper scenes. He speaks about Father 51 times. It's his dominant message that he's sharing with us. And so in the beginning of his ministry, even to the Last Supper, at the end of his ministry, he's revealing the Father. God is your Father. There's no other gods, there's no other deities that the other religions have that claim that their deity, their God, is a Father. One time I did a Google search, and I went like this, is Allah a father to the Muslim faith, and I read scholars of their faith say that that's a sacrilege to even think of that. They're opposed to that. Their titles for their God are things such as this. He is Allah the governor. Allah, there's like 99 titles. Allah the punisher of sins. Allah the judge. There's never a mention that that God is a father. We have the only God whose title is father, whose expression is father. And so when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus that you must be born again, 
even later on in Peter's letters, where Peter talked about being born again, we find that being born again, subtly underneath the service, is a promise to you. And the promise is, God is now your father, and he will make up for the lack of all those things you didn't have, because there's no perfect father in this world. And we've had good fathers, we've had those who are at one other of the spectrum, maybe an absentee father, or whatever in between, there's no father who's perfect, but our Father God promises us when you're born again, I will reparent you. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't ha- matter how much you've gone through in life, the difficulties, the tests, the trials, the abuse, whatever, he's promised whatever you lacked, I'm your father now, and I will reciprocate it, I will reparent you. It's a wonderful promise that being born again is implying to us. First John 3, 1 John 3.1 says, See what great love the Father has given unto us, that we would be called children of God, sons and daughters of God. It's a great love, this love of the Father. And he had it for his son, the same love he had for his son, the Bible tells us, he has for us. And that's a very key thought for us. You see, because Jesus is the model for us. Jesus is who we look to, the author and finisher. Jesus is the prototype. Jesus, what he had, we can have. What Jesus needed, we need. Because he was human as well as divine. He was fully human, and he can relate to you and I in every way. And so it's a great love he had for his son, and that same love he has for us. We're going to find in the baptism of Jesus something really wonderful. We find that Jesus, let's see if I can read that, because it's a little dark, isn't it? Jesus becomes the model for us. I write down there the prototype. So, John the Baptist is baptizing in a town that the Bible identifies as Beth Abara. In interpretation in Hebrew, it means the ferry house. It's on the Jordan River, right? And it's called Beth Abara for a reason, because this is a place where you're going to cross over to the other side. And Jesus is now going down towards this place river with all the rest of the crowds. And you know the story, I'll just remind you of it. When we put all the gospel stories together, this is what we find. Jesus is walking down towards the baptism uh, area of the Jordan. And we find some amazing things. You've learned it in maybe Sunday school, or you've heard it in church often, but we're going to go over it. We're going to find that the Father heart of God is revealed to us at the baptism of Jesus. And what we're going to discover, first of all, is its unconditional love. Think about this. You know the story, the heavens open, It says the spirit of God descends like a dove upon him and the father speaks and he says, this is my son who I love. I'm well pleased with him. Now, when he says that I love you and I'm pleased with you at this point in Jesus's life, he has never performed one miracle. He has no ministry. He has done no sermons. He has done no ministry at all. And yet the father says, I'm so pleased with you. You see, we get kind of a very conditional concept of love. And sometimes we think, you know, if I would just really just be walking closer to God, then he'll love me. If I get conquered this sin in my life, he'll really love me. If I find myself doing good works for God, then he'll really love me. But you see, the message we see at the baptism of Jesus, which is for us today, is I love you, my son, even before he does any works. I want to tell you a story that happened to me once. I was flying to Chile, South America, because, because we were doing missions work down there. And uh, long story made very, very short, because it's a long story, is uh, I missed the flight. And, you know, instead of getting upset, uh, I got the, it was a, uh, an evening flight, you know. And so I have to wait till the next day. So instead of getting upset, you know, I found a, a hotel in Atlanta, and then I have to wait all day to wait for the 10 o'clock flight and go back to the airport in the afternoon, you know, and, and I'm there and, 
And instead of being frustrated about why I'm not on that flight the night before, you know, I'm just thinking, well, God, maybe you have a, a purpose in this. And, um, and so I'm, I'm searching for a place to plug in my laptop and I finally find a place and I'm sitting on a long bench actually. And, uh, I'm sitting there and I look to my left and there's a man sitting next to me and, you know, because of my Greek background, my dad really loved other cultures. And um, I, I noticed this guy is not from the United States. He's not an American. He's dark complected. And uh, I just, you know, I just want to get to know him, you know. And plus, maybe the Lord will open up something for me to share the gospel, you know. So um, I said to him, hello. I said, um, um, my name is Jim Curtis. And I said, what's your name? And he reached out his hand and he said, my name is Purushal Italavamaham. And he said, but you can call me Purus. I said, well, thank you. And I said, Purus, where are you from? I said, you're not, you're not from the United States, are you? And he said, no, I'm from India. I said, oh, I thought so. I, I thought maybe, you know, Pakistan, India, something like that. He said, do you know some things about my country? I said, I know a little. I said, I'm a pastor. And... Um, I said, of a Christian faith. And I said, Bruce, um, the little that I do know about, um, about people from India, uh, you, you probably are Hindu, right? And he said, yes. And I said, Bruce, um, is it true, the little I know about your faith, that you believe uh, that in karma, if you do good deeds, good works, and you believe in reincarnation after you die, you can come back again, and you believe in seven levels to nirvana, to like heaven, right? And if you do good, in the next life you come back and you go to a higher level. That's called good karma, right? Something like that. He said, oh yeah, that's true. And I said, isn't it also true uh, if you do bad things in life, then it, you get bad karma. And when you die and you come back to life, you go down one of those levels, and he goes, yeah, that's basically true. I said, Bruce, can I share with you something about my faith, my religion? He said, yeah, sure. I said, my religion has no work system. We believe God loves everyone. And he wants us to, to come and make Jesus, his son, the Lord of our life. And I explained to him the way of salvation. And he interrupted me. He said, wait a minute. Well, he said, work system. I never heard that before. What does that mean? I said, again, it, it's something about you do good in life and God will reward you. In your case, you know, you go up your levels or go down if you don't do good. I said, my religion, we don't have that. I said, we, we know we're sinners. We need a savior. And so God gives us his love even while we're his enemies, even while we're sinners. And it's unconditional love. And I said, you know what, Bruce? After God shows you his love and you get, you get born again, then you want to serve God. Then you want to do good works. Then you want to be good for him. And we work towards that. And I said, it's so wonderful. I said, would you like that, Bruce? He said, yes, I'd like to know that. I said, well, you can. I said, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, God's perfect sacrifice, he was perfect. He died for you. I said, if, if you confess that you need him, he's going to be your Lord, you'll be with God. You'll be one with God. It's unconditional. You don't have to work. So I said, would you like to pray with me? He said, Yes. So I prayed the sinner's prayer. I said, repeat it after me. He prayed. I prayed. We went to the end. He started to cry. I started to cry. I said to him, can I pray for you now even more? And so he said, yeah. And I said, God, reveal to him now your father's love. This is your son. You're the best father he could ever have. Anything he lacked. I pray, Lord, you begin to show him your love as a father to him. I gave him a Bible. I mailed it to him. I mailed him some CDs of worship. We communicated. It was a wonderful experience. You see, the Christian faith revealed even at the baptism is, this is my son whom I love. He has done no good work, no ministry. 
And it's really a, a message to us about God's unconditional love as a father. And so Jesus was baptized at this place called Beth Abara, the ferry house, a place to cross over to the other side. And we find that this experience that Jesus is going to have that you're very familiar with, I'm going to call it something like this, that this experience of Jesus is going to be repeated in a number of times in the Bible. It's like a central experience. It's a major experience for him to receive the Father's love at this moment. You see, he was a man. He was fully human as well as fully divine. So let's read a scripture and again, I guess it's too dark, but I'll try to read it. And Mark 1, 5, 11, it says this. In those days that Jesus arrived from the Galilean village of Nazareth and was baptized by John in the Jordan, all at once as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, that's step number one, and the spirit coming down upon him like a dove, a voice came out from, let's see, what does it say, from heaven, saying, you are my beloved son, my dearly beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And so Mark's gospel is recording for us this event, and it follows in that order. The heavens are open, the spirit descends, the voice of the father speaks of his love. And before we search this out even more, I'd like you to get a deeper insight. And it's found in another gospel about the same story. And it's found in Luke 3.21. And this is what it says in the NIV. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized also. But listen to this. As he prayed, listen to that, as he prayed. This is the only gospel that tells us a little insight that we didn't have in the other gospels. Now, let's picture this. Jesus is in a crowd. The Bible tells us there's crowds of people coming to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John says this is a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, he says. And people are coming from all around Israel to get baptized by John. And Jesus is in the crowd. We don't know if it was a very orderly line of people. We don't know if it's just crowds and the people are coming forward in, in the masses of crowds. But people are being baptized. And while Jesus is waiting to be baptized, Luke tells us something very interesting. He was praying. Now, we don't know what he was praying for. So it intrigues us. What would Jesus be praying Again, he's in the crowd. He's going to be baptized. And it says he's praying. So I'm very uh, logical, like I said. And so here's my thought I'd like to share with you. If Jesus was praying to God, if Jesus was asking God for something, then we know this, that what he asks for from God, he always receives. So the point is, he prayed, and after this, he received something, right? And so he's praying before he goes down into the waters, before he even sees John. Now, I'm aware there's only one time that Jesus prayed and God didn't answer his prayer, and that was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he said, Father, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. He even prayed it three times, and he was submissive to the will of God instead of, asking God to answer his prayer. And so God answers his prayers in every other setting. And so again, thinking logical with me, he's praying and then he goes before John. And by the way, the Bible tells us in the book of John that John the Baptist did not recognize Jesus. This is his cousin. And he didn't recognize him. And it says by revelation, John is saying to the crowd, look, behold, the Lamb of God, pointing to his cousin who he doesn't recognize, who takes away the sins of the world. And now Jesus goes under the water, and as he's baptized and comes out, these three things happen that we're very, very familiar with. And so 
He's praying. He's asking God for something. I put forward to you this. What he was praying and asking God for, he received. And so, therefore, he was asking God for his love, for his power, for his affirmation. And let's go into that a little bit. Let's consider what was being said. Jesus was praying and the heavens open. That's a spiritual breakthrough. He wanted to have a breakthrough. Now, again, we often think of him as the son of God, and we think of him a little bit way above us, but he's human. He's fully human. And so I would put forward to you this. He's about to go into the ministry for the very first time. He's about to take on the religious establishment. Prior to this, he was just a citizen, a, a, a dweller of a little town called Nazareth. He was a carpenter's son, right? He was in that village, not very big. But now his life is going to change. And he knows this is a milestone crossing over, if you will. And he's going to be thrust into this new uh, phase of his life. And he needs the anointing of God, the power of God. He needs God's love to do this. And he needs the affirmation from God that God is with him. And I propose to you that Jesus is our model. Jesus is the prototype. What he prayed for, we can pray for. What he needed, we also need. What he received from God, we can also receive from God. And so it's a, in the Bible story, not just to be a story, it's to be a model for us. And so we find those three things are what's happening. One of those are very interesting. It's an affirmation that he is the son of God. God says, this is my beloved son. You're my son who I love. I'm well pleased with. Why would he need that? Why would he need an affirmation of who he is? Didn't he know he was the son of God? And I think, yes, he knew. But you know what? Being human, we all need that times of affirmation that God is with us and who we really are in his eyes. Now, you might ask yourself, well, I don't know, Jim, that's a stretch that his identity needed to be affirmed. He needed to have affirmation that he was the son of God. Let me tell you what happened right after this water baptism. An absolute challenge by Satan that he was the son of God. You know the Bible story. He goes into the wilderness, and what does Satan say? He questions him three times, right? If you're the son of God, I thought he'd just receive affirmation from, from God at this water baptism. This is my son who I'm well pleased in. Now Satan says, if you're the son. You see, that gives us another point for us as far as learning about ourselves. We're going to be challenged in our identity of who we are as children of God, as daughters and sons of God, that we're really connected to our father and that he really loves us. And so Satan is challenging him. If you're the son of God, prove yourself. You know, the Bible tells us that God is the father of lights. And in converse to that, the Bible tells us that Satan is the father of lies. Listen to that. Father of lies. Father. Have you ever thought about that? That's a, a good thought to think about. That prior to our born again experience, we were being fathered by the father of lies. And you know what fathers do? They nurture it. They, they work at it. They work at you, right? And a good father will, will observe you, will, will be helping you, encouraging you, nurturing you. A father of lights is like that. But the father of lies does it in, a, in an anti-typical way, right? He'll tell you lies about yourself. And you really question what you, who you are and what you're good at. And, and you, you'll compare yourself to other people and you're not measuring up to other people. You see, he's a father of lies. And the father of lies is coming against Jesus right after the water of baptism, if you're the son of God. And so it's something to tell us a little bit about what we have as far as a struggle at times. And so we find that Jesus receives the Holy Spirit's power. He receives the father's love and he receives affirmation of his identity. 
It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful knowledge for us to realize that God is now our father and we no longer have to listen to the father of lies because he tried to father us as well. So Satan tries to distort your identity. He tries to mess you up in who you are. Did you realize that the very first question in the entire Bible originates from Satan, from the serpent? Think about that. The first question comes, the first doubting question, did God say? That originates from the devil. And so when I discovered that many years ago as a young Christian, I thought about that, and I, I thought even more about it. I thought, questions come from the devil. And then I thought, well, what was God? When did God ask any questions? And really, he wasn't asking any questions at the beginning. Before the fall, there was no questions from God. If you read your Bible, it'll say things like this, and light be. God spoke, and he said, let there be light. And God spoke and said, you know, let there be a firmament in the heavens. And God spoke and let there be the stars and the moon and, and the sun. And everything about God prior to the fall is affirmation, is affirmation. Let light be. Let the, let the creatures be created. Everything from God is positive and affirming. But the devil is the first one with questions. And that tells us something, folks. That tells us, if you'll think about it, that questions usually emanate from two sources in your life. Either your carnal mind, questioning and doubting, because the Bible says our carnal mind is like an enmity against God. But then we have the father of lies. And so he brings us questions and doubts. Did God really say, he says to the woman, did God really say, questioning and doubting? Then it says to Jesus later on, if you're the son of God, questioning him. You see, questions often in your life and in my life emanate not from God. If you will hear it, God would rather be affirming to you, would rather relate to you and speak to you in an affirming way. But the devil comes to bring questioning. So think about that in your life. Try to figure out where's the source of this. Could it just be my own carnal mind that, that just is really against the things of God sometimes? Or really, is it not me? It's the father of lies. Because he's the first one who originated the first question. Just something to think about. So Jesus is a model for us. He's the prototype for us. The Bible calls him our elder brother. And what he needed, we need. And so this model where we see the heavens open, he needed a breakthrough. I don't know how to even explain this to you because it's, it's just probably just way beyond me. But he's about to go into ministry. He knows he's going to be taken on the religious establishment. Folks, let me tell you something. Going into ministry is not an easy thing. I remember being a young Christian and seeing my pastor go up and give the Bible study or the sermon, and I used to think very, you know, uneducatedly, I used to think, gee, that's easy what he's doing. I could do that. And then came the time where I had to give my first message, and it was like, hum the hum the hum My legs were, were just like rubber bands, you know, behind the pulpit. It's kind of frightening, isn't it, folks, to be up in front of everybody, leading worship in front of everybody. It's not an easy task. It's frightening at times. But Jesus, the Son of God, is also the Son of Man. And Jesus is going to take on the entire religious establishment. And not only that, he's going to be uh, threatened at many times to be even put to death prematurely. There are times where they want to push him over the cliff to kill him. There are times they want to take up stones to kill him. He's going to face such abuse and opposition. And more than that, he knows that he's to die for the sins of the world and to be expelled from the presence of God. He knows that he's going to receive the judgment of the world's sins. What a daunting task he knows he's about to go into. And so he's asking God. He's praying, we find out in Luke. He's praying and he's saying to God before he goes down into that water baptism, I think he's praying this. Father, I need your help. I need to know you're with me. I need to know and have and experience the power 
to be able to withstand this opposition. I need to have the anointing to preach in front of crowds. I need your help right now. And so the heavens are open. It's a breakthrough moment for him. It's a central experience for him. It's going to be repeated at different times where angels appear to him later on and strengthen him in his hour of need. He's a human. He's he's the son of man. He needs God's help different times. But this important moment in time is the beginning of this call that he's entering into. His life is going to change drastically. And he's praying for this and God gives him this breakthrough moment, spiritually speaking. The father responds to his prayers, gives him a breakthrough, an open heaven. And he has this spiritual experience that is so amazing. The Bible says that the spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. Let's go to our next slide and hopefully this will be okay. Yeah. Oh, this is even better. Good. It says in the scripture uh, that the spirit descended upon him. Another translation said the spirit fell upon him. Now, this is really interesting when you think about this. Do a little study on on sometimes Greek words, you know, because I'm Greek. I guess I have a little leaning towards that every once in a while. I'm searching for the Greek words that might give me some greater insights. And we find one here in this phrase where the spirit descended upon him. And what we find is when the spirit descends on the on the upper room in the book of Acts, chapter two, which you see on your right side there. As well as the story of the prodigal son. It says in the prodigal son story that the father who's been looking for the wayward son, the prodigal son, when he sees him, he runs towards him. And then it says this phrase that the father falls upon his neck. Uh, The translation says hugs him. And the Greek word means that the father gave him a hug. The father fell upon his neck. The very same phrase where the spirit descended upon Jesus. It's like the father's embrace for the, for his son. And at the, at the upper room in Acts chapter two, when the disciples are praying after Jesus has been crucified and, and raised again, and they're waiting for the power that he told them to wait for, it says that the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Later on, Peter says the same phrase when he gives his account to the council of Jerusalem. And they're questioning him. Basically, how dare you bring the gospel to the Gentiles? We're Jews. We're the covenant people. And this is what Peter says. I believe it's in Acts chapter 13 somewhere. It says something like this. Peter said, while I was speaking to Cornelius's family and friends, the Holy Spirit fell upon them like he did to us in the upper room. And the Greek word means the Holy Spirit embraced the Gentiles, gave them the Father's hug, the Father's embrace. And so folks, what Jesus needed, we need. What Jesus received because he asked for it, we can ask for and we can receive. And when we receive the Holy Spirit touching our life, I want to give you a little key for you. Every time you've had a spiritual experience where the Holy Spirit has showed up in your life, maybe in your private time of prayer, maybe in a worship service, maybe when you're playing CDs of worship and you feel the presence of God come upon you, that's the Father's embrace. He's showing you his Father's love. He's falling upon you. The Spirit is embracing you. It's a wonderful thing thing to think about. And so the disciples, they received it in in the book of Acts. The Gentiles received it in Acts 10, by the way. And the prodigal son story says the same thing. The father's embrace. It's a wonderful thing. So I propose to you that each time the Holy Spirit experience has been in your life, that's been the father embracing you. Every spiritual breakthrough that you've had, it's the father's embrace. And we need that because we are weak in our humanity. Just like Jesus knew he needed it. He had weakness in his humanity. He needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He needed a Affirmation that he was truly the son to his father. He needed the love of God. It's a central experience for Jesus. And I propose to you, it's your central experience. When the Holy Spirit comes,
comes upon you, it's your central experience of receiving the Father's love. His heart is for for you. It's hard to realize, it's hard to relate to, that Jesus, who lived in this small city, who worked with his earthly father, would need this. But it's really true. He was fully human. And so now at the River Jordan, he's thrust into public ministry. He needs and prays for power, love, and affirmation. Have you ever wondered why Jesus needed to be baptized? Because, you know, baptism was said to be for the remission of sins, to repent. Did Jesus need to repent? Is that why he went down like all the rest of the hundreds and thousands of people who were going there responding to the need for remission of sins? No, the Bible tells us he was without sin. Why would he go to the water baptism? And it's not for that reason, but there's probably various reasons. He who is without sin, the Bible says, John stopped him. And John said, whoever is the Lamb of God, he will have a baptism also. His baptism will be a baptism of fire. His baptism will be like an axe to get at the root of the tree. And folks, tonight I'm going to talk to you about roots in our life, roots of needs for healing, rooted areas of our life, and how God has given us the tools to get healed in our lives and get greater breakthroughs, great, greater experiences with God. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit, John said, he who's coming after me is mightier than I. His baptism is mightier than I. I believe in water baptism. I believe it's one of God's commands for, for a believer. I'm so happy to see there's a, there's a, a baptismal area back there. We believe in it as Christians, but the Bible tells us, according to the word of God, that the Holy Spirit baptism is even more mightier than water baptism, because water baptism is only a baptism of repentance from sin, but Holy Spirit baptism is baptism of fire, of cleansing, of rooting out areas, of empowering us, of anointing, of of service to God, and so it's a mighty baptism. So John stops Jesus. And John says, I have need to be baptized of you, Jesus. He recognized you have a better baptism. And what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say, I need to be water baptized for the remission of my sins. He doesn't say that like all the other Israelites knew. He says, permit it to be so, so I can fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that mean? I have a couple of clues on that. I won't go too deep into it. But did you know that whenever any priest was ever put into ministry for the first time, and Jesus was about to be, right? Whenever a priest would ever be raised up and now do ministry for the first time, the first step for a priest was to wash his feet, wash his hands, wash his arms, wash his clothes, be water washed, and then be a priest. And so Jesus is saying, this is important for me. It's to fulfill all righteousness. But I think there's also another reason why Jesus wants to be baptized in water. Because he's going to go down in the waters of baptism, symbolizing his death, just like we know our water baptism is that. It's symbolizing our death of ourself, and then we come up out of the water, and we're raised and resurrected into new life. And so Jesus is even identifying with humanity. Not that he is a sinner, but he's identifying with humanity that needs this. And so he's saying, permit this, John, even though you're stopping me, I say permit it so you can, I can fulfill all righteousness. So it's a beautiful picture here. So the baptism of Jesus is an amazing model for us. It teaches us so much. And so it's the heart of the Father that we're talking about today. Now, finally, let me just ask you a question. What holds us back? What holds us back from receiving more of the Father's love? Because I propose to you that whatever you've received, it's just sometimes a trickle. And yet he wants more for your life. I believe there's more for each one of us. I always believed there was more than what I was experiencing. I knew there was more because I knew I was only struggling as a Christian, as a pastor. I was struggling in this walk with God. I wasn't receiving. I wasn't 
You know, Jesus promised us in John 10, 10, he said, I have come to bring life and that more abundantly. So the heart of Jim Curtis used to be, where is it sometimes? Why am I struggling? Why is it so hard? Why is this Christian life so difficult for me? Why do I think you're blessing other people and I don't get many blessings? Why is it just a trickle? It's almost like there's a log jam holding back God's blessings in my life. And I don't understand it, God. So that's my question to you today. And I'll answer even more tonight, by the way. Hopefully, even God will show you individually, I hope. But what holds us back? What are the barriers to holding back believers from receiving the Father's love, the Father's power, the Father's affirmation of who we are, our identity? Hebrews 12 tells us this. Hebrews 12 will tell us that we've had earthly fathers. They related to us. They did what was right in their own eyes. They disciplined us the way they thought they should. It even goes on to say it like this. They disciplined us based on their own eyesight or opinions. And he says, and we've, we listen to them. And he says, how much more? Listen to that. How much more your heavenly father who loves us. And who does things for our good, how much more we should be subjected to him, our father. And so we find this interesting thought that just occurs to me. In other words, earthly fathers are imperfect. And that's an absolute truth, right? There's no perfect father. Tonight and today, you don't have to uh, protect your, your parents in any way. I, I'm not trying to attack anybody's parents. I'm just trying to say a truth. There's no perfect father. There's no perfect parent, right? But we have a heavenly father. And when you're born again, he promises to make up whatever you didn't have when you're born again. He'll reparent you no matter what your age is. And so the implication in Hebrews is don't be confused. How your heaven, uh, your earthly father related to you, your earthly father is different than your heavenly father. Be much more subjected to him. Be more open to your heavenly father. He's not like your earthly father. Now, I want to share with you very briefly a little bit about me. I was brought up in a Greek family in the city of New York City. I lived there for the first 21 years of my life. And um, I got born again there. And the Lord met me in a very sovereign way and in times of depression, in times of alcoholism and drug taking. And the Lord met me in my room. And it was just an amazing experience where he spoke to me that he loved me. That's that's the first thing God ever showed me, that he spoke to me and said, I love you. And I responded. And after being born again, I knew I was saved. I knew I was going to heaven. Later on, I even became a pastor. But I struggled as a Christian. When I say struggled, I mean struggled in comparisons. Always self-condemning. Always critical. Doubtful of myself. Doubtful of I'm not living up to my potential. Inferiority complex. And you might say, well, well, where does that come from? Let me tell you a little bit about me. Um, In a Greek family, which is very cultural, the culture basically shows this. That the firstborn son, not daughter, the firstborn son is special. Not the secondborn son. I was secondborn. The firstborn son is special. So I observed my older brother being without any discipline. And he was, I, I like to term it this way. My brother Nick was the original terrorist that was in our family. And why do I say that? Because he was... Type A personality ever since he's a little boy. He was five years older than me. I was not type A. I'm very introverted, very shy. And so my brother was bold. And my brother would be ruling the house even at the age of five to ten. One of my earliest memories of was my brother telling my mother what to do. You see, my father would never discipline my older brother. My father was a night shift guy anyway, so he was usually sleeping during the daytime anyway. And so he never saw, and if he did hear about it from my mother, he did no discipline on my brother Nick. 
And so I used to see things like this. Literally, I saw this. I saw my brother, probably around 10, look up at my mother and say, woman, I'm hungry, feed me. And my mother would say, Nick, don't say that. You don't say that to your mother. He said, I said, woman, feed me. And she'd start to cry with, with all his bossing her around. She would tell my father, your son Nick did this and this and this. And my father would just smile. But if Jim, the second born, did anything bad, I would get the belt. I would get, I would get whipped for doing bad things. So imagine me growing up thinking about, you know, who I am. My identity. Like, what have I done wrong? Why did I deserve a beating? Why am I so different than my brother? Why is he undisciplined and I get all the harsh treatment? And so you you can imagine some of the experiences of of abuse and uh, difficulties as a child. And you say, you know, when you get born again, all that's wiped away. It is in one sense. You're saved. You're assured of heaven. But then God wants to father you, reparent you, make up for those things that you didn't have. And he wants to heal your heart. He wants to nurture you like a father, guide you, bring you up in life, give you your, your, your real identity of who you are. And I began to go through an adventure after I heard about these fire values. And I heard about them, and I heard, heard about them this way. Our pastors up in Toronto said something like this. She, it was Carol. She said, I went through some healing of my heart with a ministry out in Idaho. And she said, I recommend all of you go to it. She says, I have struggled all my life with, with self-criticism, uh, with a lot of self-doubt and uh, all that. And she said, I went to this ministry and I learned of the tools to heal my heart. I learned how to get free from all those barriers that have been holding me back in God. And you know, when I heard that, I thought, that's me. I need this. And I told my wife, I said, wherever this is, whoever this ministry is, we're going to them. We're going to, we're going to get involved with them. We're going to do something. And, and I went full on into a, a journey from my life. I knew I needed healing in my heart. I knew there was a lot of barriers and log jams in my life. I knew that there was a lot of self-criticism and inferiority complexes. And so I began a journey, and some of it was tough stuff. I went to personal counseling with a counselor for like five days because, again, I wanted it so bad. And I'm here to tell you today that I know today that God is giving me the abundant life. I feel it. I feel special to God. I never felt that prior to those uh, times where I encountered this, these fire values of healing of the heart. And so I want to propose that to you for tonight as well. I believe that God is going to reveal to you, way beyond whatever I say, something about your life that's going to be like a, a identification of some barriers, and he's going to show you what to do about it. And in my case, this is what I was taught to do, and it's very, very simple. But I realized part of my barriers was this judgment against my father. Why don't you discipline my older brother? Why are you so harsh on me? Why didn't I ever feel you really ever nurtured me? Why weren't you there for me? And so what I discovered was that's a judgment, Jim, that you have against your father. And the Bible teaches us about judgments hold us back. Judgments that go out are like a ball, and they come back at you, Jesus says. The same judgment you meet out will be measured back to you, Jesus says. And so some of my barriers were based on my sinful responses to my upbringing. And it's not about blaming my dad, and it's not about blaming your dad or your mom. That's not the key. The thought is, Holy Spirit, show me where I have sinned, where I have judgments, where I have been unforgiving, where I might have some bitterness. And God, forgive me for that, and I forgive them for whatever events I can identify and remember in my life. And the freedom that comes, you know, like a log jam, when you start pulling out one stick 
and you start dealing with another stick. And after a while, the pressure will build up behind a, a dam where it will give you a breakthrough. And all of a sudden, after you've been working on it for a while, it just comes flooding out. The blessings start coming. And I've experienced it, folks. I'm not just preaching a message. I'm telling you, me, the message is I've been living the abundant life the last 28 years Based on my Christian experience of being 40 plus years born again, those first years were logjam years. Those were difficult years. I was just hanging on. Even as a pastor, I was just struggling. But today, I can tell you that God wants to give you a breakthrough. What Jesus had, we can have. He had a breakthrough. You can have it as well. And so being confronted by our father issues... There's a need to forgive. There's a need, there's a need to forgive for your dishonor, for your own sin, your own sinful reactions. Now you might have said, well, I forgot those. That's in the past. They don't bother me anymore. But you know what? We're going to learn tonight. There are spiritual laws that unless we deal with them the way the word of God says, you can't just bury it in the past. You can't just forget about it. You can't just deny it's really going to affect you anymore. It still affects us unless we deal with it. And so tonight I'm going to ask you to consider coming and we'll go deeper into this message of how God can do that. But right now, let's close with a word of prayer. And here's the word of prayer I'd like to suggest for you. If you relate to anything I've said, and especially about any father issue, and let's just start right now. Let's just like remove one little stick, okay? It could be something that happened even this week with your, with your own father. Or even a memory you had this week about something that really disappointed you. You see, you can have dishonor in a very small way, but it still is putting log jams in your life. You can be disappointed in your, in your dad because when you were a little child, he promised you he would take you after work, uh, a work week, he'll take you camping. But he decided, well, he, he can't do that this week. And you get disappointed. That's just the beginning of a dishonoring feeling that a child might have. All of us have some sort of log jam. From one end of the spectrum with a good father all the way to the opposite end, we can have all sorts of judgments and dishonor in our life. If you can relate to this today, you have an opportunity to pray. And I'm not saying that anybody will hear your prayer, but God will. You remember when Hannah prayed a prayer and it was just a whisper? No one heard her prayer, but, but God would hear her prayer. I'm going to ask you to whisper a prayer to God. If you're ready, if you feel like this relates to you, if you feel this is true in your life, if there's any sort of recognition in your heart of any judgments against your father, any disappointments that have been in your life, any sort of examples of experiences and stories of your life where some sort of abuse happened or some sort of disappointment happened, then you can pray about it and you can start to have the tools of removing these log jams in your life to get the abundant life flowing in your life, the blessings of God flowing in your life, the breakthrough that you really, really need. And so I'd like to ask you to just bow your heads right now and, and just close your eyes. And no one's going to be looking at you. And that's the point. You don't have to, you know, perform or or be even shy about anybody noticing you but close your eyes and let's just be serious about this and uh, if we could just play a little bit of uh, soft music in the background this will be good but let's just consider this before you pray if you're thinking if you've been thinking about any sort of event or anything that relates to you especially towards your your earthly father and again you're not trying to blame him you're trying to find the fault in you any sort of judgment, any sort of disappointment, any hurt that you have felt about an experience with your father, this is your opportunity to learn these tools of healing of the heart, of removing these log jams in your life. And it's very, very simple. It's all about forgiveness. And it works two ways. It's forgive me, God, for my anger, my, my disappointment, my judgment, but then it's two ways. It's I forgive him. 
and you can pray out that prayer and you can whisper it to God. Why do I say whisper it to God? Can I just think about it? Can I just go home and figure this out on my own? Can I just, I don't want to do this, Jim. I don't want to pray. Well, the Bible tells us very, very clearly, confess that you may be healed. It doesn't say go home and think about it and you'll be healed. Work on it on your own and your own brain and your own mind and be healed. No, it says confess. And that's why it's important to pray. And so when you form the words with a whisper, no one hears your words. But we'll have a moment in just a second here and we'll pray and give you an opportunity to tell God this, the thing that relates to you. And let's practice this, even if it's a little disappointment that you recognize. I felt this towards my dad one day. Then pray that prayer that forgive me for judging him and I forgive him. So tell God in a moment now, tell God what it was about, identify it, and then pray those two parts of forgiveness. Forgive me and I forgive him. And I want to pray for you first as you're getting ready. So, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we could be around your word and under your word and in your anointing, Lord, to, to know, Lord, that you're here to be our father, to help us, to be the father we've always wanted, the perfect father. And so, Lord, would you just begin something very fresh and very new in in, in this house today, Lord? Let's Let us, Lord, come to you with our hurts and and the thoughts and the memories, Lord, and help us to remove everything that is holding us back and teach us today, Lord, your ways. And so, Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for the word that you have for us today in this house today. In Jesus' name. Now, it's time for you to pray, and again, whisper the prayer. Just tell God what it was about And then ask him to forgive you and you forgive your dad. Just identify it. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Yes, Lord. Just give you all the glory and all the honor, Lord. Because you're you're with us, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. It's important to pray, to confess. Lord, we thank you today. We thank you for your great love. We thank you that you're our Father. We thank you, Lord, that you're the Father of lights. You bring light to our situations. You shine your light upon us, Lord. And Lord, would you just shine your light of love upon each one of us, Lord, knowing that unconditionally you love us. You always have, Lord. And so, Lord, I ask you to bless each one as we go. Lord, that you bless us during a time of fellowship around this meal that's coming up. And that, Father, you'd, you'd be with us this day and make this a, a very special day for many people, a breakthrough spiritual moment for many people today. And so, Lord, I thank you for this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.